0: Next, it is my pleasure to introduce to you the speaker we have this evening. Uh, We have a a special speaker. Uh, We've uh, worked for months to get him here. He's here this evening, and uh, I would like for you to uh, come on up, Phil. I would like for you to. uh, I would like to introduce Phil to you. He is the executive director of Grace to You, and that is a a media ministry that he works. And uh, Pastor Rick. uh, was somewhere at a conference and heard uh, Phil speak, and he said, man, we'd like to have that man here during our missions conference. So would you give me a hand in in, uh, welcoming Phil Johnson, Pastor Phil Johnson. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you. It's a joy to be here. Actually, I've lived in California now for 37 years, and this is my first time ever in Modesto. I've been missing it, haven't I? I don't know why I waited so long. Well, I love the theme of missions, and so I've chosen this passage. Actually, they asked me to speak on this passage, but uh, I I would have gone to this because uh, Jonah chapter 4 is the story of Jonah, the one missionary whose ministry in a foreign culture stands out in the Old Testament, Jonah. Jonah, you know, was a reluctant missionary sent to a hostile culture, but then he was used by God to bring an entire nation of, of uh, pagan Gentiles to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The city of Nineveh entirely repented uh, at his preaching. That was one of the world's most debauched cities ever. This was the largest and most populated city in the evil Assyrian Empire. Assyria was uh, perhaps the most deadly the the most deadly uh, empire that ever ruled the world, a bloodthirsty culture of warfare and brutality. And in Jonah's time, the Assyrians were an imminent threat to Israel's existence. Jonah did not want to go there. He had no interest in ministering to those people. And from a purely human perspective, it's, it's understandable why God sent Jonah to deliver a prophecy of destruction to the Ninevites. And and Jonah, who would love to have seen them destroyed, he didn't want even that duty. He would have preferred, I think, to see Nineveh judged without any kind of warning. Now, practically everyone knows the first part of this story, that Jonah was swallowed by a huge fish, and the fish was the vehicle by which God brought him back and set him in the right direction. And when Jonah finally did obey God and take the prophecy to Nineveh, the entire city repented. They genuinely repented. Uh, They repented in dust and ashes, the Old Testament says. In fact, let me read it to you. Scripture says, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. That includes even the king, Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. All of Jonah 3 is a description of this revival. It was really one of the greatest and most surprising revivals in the history of redemption. Thousands were swept into the kingdom, and it turned out that this was God's real plan after all, not to destroy the city, but to save it. And this is a terrific picture of Christian missions. God visits the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And furthermore, the conversion of Nineveh is a wonderful Old Testament window into God's long-term redemptive plan. And specifically, it's, a, it's an early example of how God is fulfilling what was the central promise of the Abrahamic covenant. This is how, in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So that sounds really glorious, right? Well, here's the problem. That's not the end of the story. The revival was wonderful, and, and make no mistake, this was true revival. Those people were truly converted and we know that they will be in heaven because Jesus himself said so. In Matthew 12, 41, he told the, the stubborn unbelievers of his own hometown, Capernaum, or at least it was the base of his operations, Capernaum, where he did all this work, he told the people there, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So that whole generation of Ninevites was spared from the threatened judgment. God did not actually destroy the city of Nineveh until about a hundred years later, after this penitent generation's great, great grandchildren returned to their ancestors' barbarian and paganism, You can read about that in the prophet of Nahum, how the city was ultimately destroyed. But anyway, the Ninevites of Jonah's generation were truly and soundly converted, and the threat of judgment was instantly and totally averted. But Jonah's story doesn't end on a positive note. It ends with a temper tantrum. Jonah himself was angry that God spared the Ninevites. He frankly didn't have the heart of a decent missionary. And therefore, he stands as a negative example to us. And that's the part of the story that I want to consider with you. So turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, the end of Jonah's story. This is, of course, the least familiar part of this amazing story. This is the chapter they don't cover in Sunday school, even though practically... Every Sunday school teacher in the history of Sunday schools loves to teach about Jonah. They always have to leave this part out because it's just such a a lousy ending. If I were recording Jonah's story as a novel, I would have ended with chapter three and, and the glorious revival in Nineveh. It would have made a far more upbeat ending, and I love happy endings. Here was the greatest revival literally in the history of the world. Most preachers would literally give their lives if they could be used by God in a revival like that. And you would think that Jonah, of all people, a prophet, a preacher, would be completely overjoyed that so many of his nation's bitterest enemies had embraced Yahweh as their own God, right? Shouldn't he be happy about that? Also, this revival should have deepened Jonah's own repentance because early in his story, you know, he tried to flee his duty. And God had brought him back. Or he, had, he had brought him even to repentance in the belly of the fish and then used him as the instrument for preaching a message that put the people of the world's most wicked city on their faces before God. Who wouldn't want to see a revival like this? Certainly anyone with a true heart of a missionary would be ecstatic to be used by God for something like this. But the effect of the revival on Jonah was precisely the opposite. It drove him into a deep bitterness. And in chapter 4, we see an even more shameful rebellion against God than his earlier attempt to flee the Lord's calling. And then Jonah's story ends just suddenly and on a decidedly negative note. It is a tragic closing chapter to what could have been a glorious triumphant account of this great prophet's life and ministry. But it's a downer of an ending. Now, let's not be too condescending towards Jonah. We are no better than he is. In fact, one thing you have to admire about Jonah is the fact that he recorded this closing chapter in his book. We wouldn't know anything about this incident if Jonah himself had not written it down or at least told somebody about it and they wrote it down. So Jonah deserves credit for his honesty in reporting how badly he behaved. He wasn't pleased about the revival in Nineveh. He hated the Ninevites. He frankly thought God should have wiped them out without any kind of warning. And, and now that they repented and God relented, Jonah was angry. And so he throws a tantrum, and that is the focus of Jonah chapter 4. So let's read the whole chapter. It's only 11 verses long. And, and let's start with the closing verse of chapter 3, because it tells us what the first verse of chapter 4 is about. So here's the last verse in chapter 3. When God saw what the Ninevites did how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, here's chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see see what... Would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, let's talk about this. Why did Jonah hate the Ninevites. I said earlier, it's, it's kind of understandable. It really isn't hard to understand. These were the worst enemies of the people of God in the time of Jonah, and they had devolved into a, this wicked, violent, contemptible culture that represented everything that's unrighteous. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, which was the rising world power in Jonah's time, and the Assyrians were among... Israel's most dreaded enemies. They were the greatest threat to Israel. Their armies were ruthless killers. They were known for waging especially brutal military campaigns. They, they would build pyramids out of their enemies' severed heads, literally stack them up in pyramids. They displayed the disemboweled carcasses of their enemies like trophies. And they, and they did this sort of thing for two reasons. One, they just seemed to love gore and violence. And number two, they wanted to strike terror into the hearts of their enemies. Assyrian military policy had a built-in ruthlessness. If you ever want to see this, visit the British Museum in, in London and go look at the Assyrian antiquities. And they have these big stones with little pictures built in that describe the sort of torture that they revelled in and it's it's awful it's ghastly if i described it to you in detail we'd probably have some fainting people you know most conquering armies will leave garrisons of soldiers behind to sort of organize an occupying government and keep order in a conquered region and and you know That's how they take over territory. But the Assyrians figured that they could avoid all of that, keep all of their army together, if they just carried out a campaign of wholesale slaughter in the first place, and so they killed and burned everything in their wake. Other empires in history have conquered territory in order to expand their empire. The Assyrians conquered for the sheer joy of pillage and destruction. They would sometimes conquer a territory and then just leave it. They often would reduce a conquered city to ashes. They would even cut down the trees in the city just to ensure that no one would ever want to try to rebuild there again. They just loved the destruction. And every person in Israel was well familiar with the Assyrians' thirst for destruction and gore. As far back as Moses, God had prophesied that he would use Israel's enemies as the rod of his judgment if they were unfaithful to him. And Israel in Jonah's day was particularly unfaithful. So Jonah was probably aware that God would eventually use the invading Assyrian army to judge Israel. And therefore, it went against every fiber of Jonah's moral constitution to travel to Nineveh and warn those people that God was going to judge them. He believed that his hatred of the Ninevites was a righteous hatred. He made the same error as a lot of 21st century Christians who act as if, you know, the people out there who hold unbiblical worldviews are our enemies. They're not our enemies. They are the mission field. In 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5, Paul describes the spiritual warfare that we are called to wage as Christians, and he says it like this, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Notice what he's saying. We destroy ideological strongholds. We demolish arguments and lofty opinions, not people. The goal of spiritual warfare is the liberation of people who are in bondage to those evil worldviews, or to say it another way, our mission is to proclaim the gospel message to people who are trapped in ungodly ideological strongholds and then make disciples of them. Jonah had no desire to make disciples out of the Ninevites. It's shameful to say, but he hated them. It's tempting to compare him to, say, Westboro Baptist and Fred Phelps, you know, the people who hold up signs at at funerals and things like that. They advertise their hatred with posters in shameful public demonstrations. The difference is that Jonah was apparently teachable, and Jonah 4 is the record of how God mercifully and graciously and gently instructed this wayward prophet. And that fact is remarkable because Jonah himself was convinced that the justice of God and the wrath of God against sin ought to nullify the mercy of God, particularly with regard to sinful people like the Ninevites. They don't deserve mercy, was how he was thinking. And of course, none of us deserves mercy. But Jonah had fallen in love with the notions of divine wrath and God's righteous retribution, and he had lost sight of the glory of God's tender mercy and saving grace. So he was prepared to see Nineveh destroyed, but he wasn't prepared to see those people saved. He would have rejoiced at their destruction, but he couldn't bring himself to celebrate their salvation. And this chapter is the record of how God addressed that horrible imbalance in Jonah's theology. In chapter 1, this part of the story you're well familiar with. Jonah's rebellion had caused him to flee from the presence of the Lord, or try. Here, he's rebellious again, and angry, but this time, he flies in the face of the Lord. In chapter 1, God pursued him with discipline, and you might think here, the Lord's going to be even harsher with him, but instead... God graciously and patiently instructs him with an interesting series of object lessons. Jonah resented God's mercy towards the Ninevites, but the fact is no one in this whole story needed grace and mercy more than Jonah himself. And so the Lord gently corrects him with this series of supernatural symbols designed to center his theological compass one more time. See, Jonah didn't lack zeal or a sense of justice, but he had a lot to learn about God's compassion. And so God gives him a succession of lessons to aid in his learning about divine compassion. So let's look at them in order. The first I'm going to call the lesson of the weed. The lesson of the weed. Now, try to understand Jonah's thinking at this point. Verse 1 says he's displeased and very angry. That's clearly an understatement. He is seething with resentment. Why is he so angry? Well, for one thing, he has sustained a wound to his own ego. For one thing, he preached that God was going to destroy Nineveh. Now God is not going to destroy Nineveh. And so God's favor to the Ninevites looked to Jonah like disfavor directed at him. And in fact, here's a warning signal you ought to keep in mind. When God's goodness to someone else begins to feel like an insult to you, you've got a serious spiritual problem. If you think someone else's privilege is somehow a slight against you, if you think the other guy needs to check his privilege, you're sinning. That's a form of covetousness. That is a root of bitterness that will defile you and others as well, and you need to mortify that attitude. It is lawful for God to do what he will with his own. Jesus asked, is is your eye evil because God is good to other people? Jonah had no right to be resentful of God's goodness to someone else. Now, let's be honest. This is a typical attitude of the sinful heart. And we we all know what this feeling is like, right? It's a typical manifestation of human pride. This is like the resentment of those workers who were hired early in the day. But Jesus himself clearly condemns this attitude as a sin. It's wicked. And it's a particularly stubborn brand of wickedness. You see that in Jonah. He firmly believes that his contempt for the Ninevites is righteous and necessary because of the extreme wickedness of the Assyrian nation. Because remember, as pagans go, this culture was perhaps the very worst one that has ever gained world dominance. From a human perspective, it is easy to see why Jonah hated them. These were people who reveled in brutality and paganism. So as a nation, you could say they were the chief of sinners. And so Jonah was convinced that his hatred of them was not only warranted, he wore it as a badge of righteousness. He thought this was a righteous attitude. In his mind, you weren't righteous at all if you didn't hate the Ninevites. And so naturally he believed God of all people was obligated to hate the Ninevites too. The the very thought of divine mercy being extended to such an openly evil nation absolutely disgusted him. He he said, he he felt that the, the Assyrians weren't worthy of compassion I'm preaching from my iPad here and every time I say Assyrians Siri comes on (laughs) I don't know how to stop that I'll have to work that out before tomorrow anyway he felt they weren't worthy because their sin was so abominable now it's true that sinners have no legitimate claim on divine mercy Sinners don't deserve divine mercy. He had that much right. God's grace, by definition, is undeserved. That's true of all of us. No one has any right to demand God's grace. But by the same token, no sinner who desires to benefit from divine grace has any right to begrudge the grace of God to another sinner. That's like the guy in Matthew 18, that parable who was forgiven a massive debt, then he went out and found someone who owed him a much lesser debt, and he grabbed him by the neck and demanded full repayment. This is exactly how Jonah is acting here. God had forgiven him the debt of his own sin. He had prayed for forgiveness and received it in Jonah chapter 2. He could have spent all eternity paying for that sin, the sin he committed in chapter 1, He could have paid for that for all of eternity in in fiery torment under the wrath of God and yet he never would have been able to pay his own debt in full. God had forgiven Jonah an unpayable debt. How could Jonah then demand justice for the earthly offenses of the Ninevites? And worse yet, notice Jonah is now trying to justify his own sin, a, a sin that he had already expressed repentance for, and received forgiveness from God, Jonah 2, that entire chapter, is a prayer of, for Jonah's repentance. He had begged God for mercy when he was in the belly of that fish, and God had shown him mercy. But don't miss the significance of chapter 4, verse 2. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to fly to flee to Tarshish. So like Jonah is saying, you remember that sin I repented of, yeah, well, I take it back. I wasn't wrong after all. I was right. You did with the Ninevites exactly what I feared you would do. It proves I was right all along. I knew you were going to do this. Verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's not saying that as praise. That's an accusation against God. Yeah, I know all about your mercy and your compassion, and I think it's wrong because you're giving that compassion to sinful people. That's his attitude. But God had a special object lesson to teach Jonah that compassion is for sinners, not for saints. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And God chose this moment, when Jonah was at his very worst, he's sinning, he's angry, he's rebellious, pouting, and in that very moment, God showed him grace. Verse three, Jonah says, why don't you just kill me? I'd rather, I'd rather die than live. And God appeals to him very gently in verse four. Do you do well to be angry? I mean, is it really good for you, Jonah, to pout like this? Do you have a right or a good reason to throw this tantrum? It's a tender plea. This is not a thundering accusation from God. It's a tender plea. But Jonah, who spurns this gentle reproof, according to verse 5, went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there, and sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. In other words, he sets up a little shelter for himself in the... King James Version and the ESV, which is what I'm reading, the word says booth, but this was like a a flimsy little lean-to, probably made of twigs. You'll remember that the Israelites had a festival known as the Feast of Booths, where they would live for a few days each year in these shelters that were made out of twigs woven together, and it wouldn't have been enough shelter to shade him from the burning desert sun in in a place like Nineveh. But he sets himself up in that booth in the scorching heat to see what would become of the city, it tells us. He, He seems to have been harboring the vain hope that God might respond to his little tantrum by, okay, Jonah, I'll wipe out Nineveh anyway. And he wants to see that if it happens. But here's where God taught Jonah that mercy is for sinners, not saints. At the peak of his rage, while Jonah sat there pouting in that sweltering little booth God causes a miracle to occur, a plant, some kind of gourd or or weed, springs up, growing at a supernatural rate to provide shade for Jonah, verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. In other words, God showed him compassion the very kind of compassion that Jonah was so resentful of. And yet, when he was the recipient of the mercy, Jonah's heart is made glad. Look at the end of verse 6. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Despite his own unrighteousness, Jonah was exceedingly glad to receive a token of grace from the hand of God. Here was the point. Jonah thought that he was standing on this inviolable theological principle that God is supposed to hate the the wicked and be wrathful against them. After all, God hates the wicked every day. It says so in Scripture. He's angry with them every day. He's not supposed to be merciful to sinners, is he? But Jonah's response to the shade provided by this weed proves that he didn't really think that principle was entirely non-negotiable. In fact, he's perfectly happy for God to show grace to a sinner as long as he's the sinner receiving the mercy. But God isn't through with the object lessons. Follow with me. The lesson of the weed, very simple, that compassion is for sinners, not saints. And now God has a new lesson. We'll call this one the lesson of the worm The lesson of the worm, verse 7. But when dawn came, the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Here God destroys the plant that provided Jonah's shade the very next day. Does this look like God's being capricious? One day he appoints this weed to provide shade for Jonah and make him glad. The very next day he appoints a worm to come and eat at the root of this plant so that it died as quickly and miraculously as it had sprung up. Why did God do this? Well, he's teaching Jonah a very important lesson, that compassion is for people, not things. Skip ahead for a minute to verse 11, where God himself points out to Jonah the obvious irony of this whole situation. Jonah is angry at God for destroying the shady plant, And he's even angrier that God is not destroying the people of Nineveh. There's something about this that exposes how pathetically sick an evil heart can be, even in a redeemed person like Jonah. Jonah loved that weed, but he hated the city of Nineveh. He would have God destroy a city full of people, but he thought it was wrong of God to destroy a silly weed. He's angry again. Let me read verses 10 and 11 once more. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor and you didn't make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is my favorite ending in any book in Scripture. Also much cattle. You get that when you... Drive between here and L.A. Much cattle. (laughs) Now, what does this mean? The more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, these are children who are too young to know something as basic as which hand is the left hand. If the city had, think about this, if this city had 120,000 children, then the total population of Nineveh would have to be at least... 600,000 and possibly more than a million. That is a lot of people. And Jonah was hoping to see them all wiped out by the wrath of God. What a wicked, hateful attitude. I mean, even God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. And God suggests that these little children who are too young to grasp even something as basic as which hand is which... And even the the cattle, not rational creatures, but brute beasts, they are more suitable objects for Jonah's pity than this inanimate object, a gourd plant that he hadn't even planted or cared for. It's just a weed. I mean, Jonah, you're wasting all this pity on a weed for pity's sake. Aren't all those little kids and even a bunch of cows more fitting candidates for that sympathy? Compassion is for people, not things. If you want to have pity, don't waste it on a weed. People, even sinful people, especially sinful people, are where we should focus our compassion. People, not things. Jonah's refusal to have compassion for an entire city, especially while he's mourning for his pet plant, it's an incredibly sinful and selfish attitude. And so God appoints a third object lesson for Jonah. We'll call this the lesson of the wind. The lesson of the wind, verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. This is a hot wind. Here's something to note. There are four places in Jonah where we're told God appointed something to teach Jonah a lesson. In chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Here in verse 6, God appoints a weed. Verse 7, he appoints a worm. And now in verse 8, he appoints a scorching east wind. If you like alliteration, you can say God appointed a whale, a weed, a worm, and a wind. Each one of these object lessons is a miraculous phenomenon. These are not acts of nature. You'll read some commentaries that talk about, you know, how rapidly the gourd plants grow in a climate like that. Let me just tell you, no weed grows as rapidly as this one grew, except, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk. This sprung up in a single day, enough to give shade to Jonah. And there's a supernatural element in the worm as well, which almost instantly killed this plant And the wind, which comes up violently out of nowhere, these are miracles, obvious miracles. And we need to recognize them as that, not try to explain them as natural phenomena. They're not. But this wind is like the the hot winds we get in Southern California. I don't know if you get them up here. Uh, And they're hot and, and heavy winds. But this comes up suddenly with a supernatural intensity. And it is clearly another lesson for Jonah. The lesson of the weed was that compassion is for sinners, not saints. The lesson of the worm was that compassion is for people, not things. Now comes this third lesson, the lesson of the wind. Compassion is for others, not self. In all this drama, the one person Jonah felt most sorry for was himself. And that was ridiculous because nothing God was doing in Nineveh was the least bit hurtful to Jonah. Maybe it hurt his feelings, but it shouldn't have. He wasn't actually hurt, but he chose to become embittered. He dredged up these old attitudes that he had already once repented of. He nursed an angry attitude against God, and he justified all of it in his mind with a deluge of self-pity. This whole chapter is just dripping with Jonah's self-pity. Look at verse 3. Please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live really? Seriously, Jonah? Let me tell you a secret. Jonah didn't want to die. He's just feeling sorry for himself. He's being melodramatic. He's frankly acting like a two-year-old, letting his emotions have control of his entire soul instead of letting his rational understanding of truth keep some restraint on all that passion. He's living by mood swings and and his own emotions are jerking him from one extreme to another and you can see it all happen. The minute God shows him the least bit of favor by sending that weed with its shade, Jonah cheers up and it says he's glad. Maybe he even entertained the thought that this little show of divine favor was a sign that God was going to give him his way after all. And if that's what he was thinking, if his happiness Reflected some degree of hope that he might get to witness the destruction of Nineveh after all, well, that's just sick. But that's what seems to be going on here. This is why he set up that lawn chair in the first place and had a little tailgate party for himself under the shade, verse 5, to see what would become of the city. It's a typical attitude of people who think the way Jonah was thinking at this moment. They, they imagine that any token of divine favor is proof God approves of them. And if God approves of me, they think, he surely despises my enemies. But this little token of favor to Jonah actually signified the exact opposite intention on God's part. Scripture says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's Romans two, verse four. And that's why it's perfectly appropriate for God to show grace to sinful people. Whether the saints with Jonah's attitude like it or not, God's goodness is designed to provoke repentance. Jonah was happy with the plant, but when the weed died and the wind blew it away so that the burning sun began to burn on his exposed head, Jonah went right back to the same old song of self-pity, the end of verse 8. He was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. What happened here is the wind basically blew away his hypocritical exterior, and it exposes Jonah for what he really is, selfish, hypocritical, self-righteous, too smug and too contemptuous of others. So when things went his way, he was happy. When providence seemed to work against him, He wallows in self-pity. This is a shameful way for a man of God to act. In fact, let me tell you, as someone who's spent hours in the counseling room listening to people moaning about how life is unfair, there is nothing uglier or more spiritually destructive, nothing more harmful to our own souls than self-pity. Save that compassion for other people. Pity is no good when you use it on yourself. Jonah's behavior here is shameful. Verse 9, God reiterates the tender pleas, same words as verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you really think it's good for you to be angry with me for destroying the weed, that gourd plant, that I gave you in the first place? And Jonah's answer is, shockingly brash and reckless. Yes, he says, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I have a right to be angry, he says. And I'll be angry until the day I die, and in fact, I'm so angry I might just die right now. Won't you just kill me? That's the attitude conveyed in his words, and it, it's frightening. He is being totally selfish and impetuous here. He he he's He's completely focused on himself as if he is the only person in the world and and therefore he's acting as if he's the only person deserving of divine compassion he felt sorry for the plant he felt sorry for himself but he had not one ounce of compassion for the Ninevites that is an incredibly wicked attitude notice how his theological imbalance totally warps his perspective on everything and really ruins the effectiveness of his ministry. His pity is utterly misdirected. He sits in that booth in the desert. In front of him lays one of the largest and most important cities in the world, and he is hoping against hope that God would somehow relent and wipe those people off the face of the earth the way Jonah believed he should have in the first place. And then the whole account ends abruptly with the Lord's gentle rebuke, really gentle. And then that's the close of the story. It's like a movie with a bad ending. As I said earlier, we know from the sequel, the book of Nahum, that the Lord did not destroy Nineveh until more than a century later. This whole generation who repented were spared. But what became of Jonah? You ever wonder that? It doesn't say. It's possible, perhaps even likely, that he had a change of heart and repented of his rebellious attitudes. After all, there's a pattern of repentance, I mean, so far with him. We've seen him repent. We know he's capable of it. And he wrote or else told to somebody what's recorded in this account. And it doesn't portray him in a very good light, which suggests to me that his bitter heart may have been softened somewhat And his focus eventually turned away from himself towards others. He learned the value of people over things. He learned to love sinners as well as the people of God. And he recorded it all as a lesson for us. At least I hope that's what was going on. But here's the lesson for us. The missionary spirit is not merely zeal, but zeal tempered by love. That's the attitude Christ calls us to have in Matthew 5 Verses 44 and 45. Jesus said this, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Here's Jesus' point. You want to be like God. Do you do you want to be a true son of the Father, so that you reflect the character of your Father? then do good to your enemies. Show them love and true compassion. And focus your compassion not merely on people whom you love and respect, but on the unlovable people as well. Sinners need compassion more than saints do. And focus your compassion on people, not things. A person needs compassion more than a plant. People made in God's image are fitting objects for our deepest concerns. Trees are not. You get that, right? I mean, we're all Californians. But the truth is, people are more important than trees. Even whales and other animals are not worthy of the same level of dignity and brotherly love that we owe to our neighbors, even the ones who aren't so lovable. Our society has totally lost that perspective in this age of save the trees and save the whales crusades. But remember, in this story, God beached the whale and saved the prophet. He killed the weed and saved the city. That's the proper gospel perspective. And focus your compassion on others, not on yourself. Self-pity has no place in the heart of the Christian. We all have the tendency of, Jonah in our hearts let's be honest about that we understand him perhaps more than most of us would like to admit may the Lord teach us instead to cultivate the spirit of Christ who by his death reconciled us to God even while we were yet enemies that's the gospel Romans 5 verse 6 while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly Indeed, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God justifies the ungodly. And since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unfathomable love that reached out to us, purchased our redemption, even when we were enslaved to sin and at war with righteousness, may we glorify Christ and may we be channels of that same love which is now shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Forgive us for our hardness of heart, for our petulant, complaining unbelief. We do believe, Lord, cure our unbelief for the eternal glory of Christ